We'll start off by saying, uh, again, a happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the room. And you always get a, a special turnout on Mother's Day. And let's just say, clear, make it clear now, we expect to see you all back on Father's Day as well. You're just the same, want the same little surge of attendance. And I don't quite have a special Mother's Day message for you, but the girl in our story has a mom. So there's a little connection right there. And uh, actually, to get things started this morning, I want to begin by talking a little bit about the first mom in the Bible, the first pair of parents. So actually, we're going to jump right in. Grab your Bible, open up to page 1, or Genesis 1. And we'll start there just for a special introduction this morning, Genesis chapter 1. I think you all know how the Bible begins, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And over six days, God formed everything that there is. With each passing day, he looked at his creation and saw that it was good. And this culminated on the sixth day when he created man and woman, and after which he looked upon his completed creation, and it wasn't good. It was very good. It was perfect. Then in chapter 2, we learn a little bit about what life was like for the first humans, Adam and Eve. They had a perfect environment, a perfect life, and just one rule to live by. Chapter 2, verse 17, just, just don't eat from that one tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, God says to them. And it makes us wonder, did, did Adam even know what death was at that time? We don't know. But we know what happens next. In chapter 3, Satan shows up already after God's perfect creation. So soon Satan is there and speaking through his serpent, he tempts Eve into eating from that tree. The woman repeats God's command, but Satan tempts her. And remember what Satan says to her. Chapter 3, verse 4, he says, you surely will not die. God said, you surely will die. And Satan says the exact opposite. You surely will not die. And she bit, figuratively, then literally. She and Adam with her saw the fruit, desired, took, ate. And then you know what happens next? They didn't die. They, they were still breathing. So was God, was God wrong? Was Satan telling the truth? Well, not quite. Their eyes were opened. They did become like God, but it came at the cost of being separated from God. And that's the biblical definition of death, separation. And on that day, they instantly died spiritually. They were separated from God's special presence. This infinite chasm erupted between them and God. They could never cross. They were forever, eternally now, separated from God because of their sin. And to make matters worse, their physical lives would have an expiration date as well. Man would also die physically because of sin. That's where the body and the soul are separated. Death and suffering were introduced because of this fall. And now everyone, one day, will return to the earth. You will become dust. And look at chapter 3, verse 19. The curse, he's speaking to man, and God says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Interestingly and ironically in the next verse, Adam names his wife Eve because she's the mother of all the living. But you could equally make the case that she's the mother of all the dead. Because now, since then, all have been born with an expiration date. We will all die. This is man's greatest problem, and there's no avoiding crossing that river. 
This problem is exacerbated even more in chapter 4 because what do we see happening right after the fall? What's the first major event that happens? Murder. Murder. Cain and Abel, the first offspring. But they already possess this sin nature and it bears its rotten fruit of anger and pride and jealousy and envy and even murder. And since then, really nothing has changed. Death hasn't changed. This is stated powerfully in Genesis chapter 5. Most people overlook this entire chapter. They think it's just a list of names and numbers, but it's not. This is the Paradise Lost chapter. So soon after God's perfect creation, what do we find? Just look at chapter 5, look at verse, verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8. So all the days Seth of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Do you, do you see that recurring phrase? It's a chapter of death. They all die. Death has already claimed and conquered God's creation. It did not take long. Sadly, it's only fitting for the wages of sin is death, and you have to pay. Man's depravity progressed to such an extreme back then that God himself ordered a near-extinction event pretty soon. The next chapter, chapter 6, is the flood. There's so much wickedness and depravity that God elects to wipe everything and everyone out except Noah and his family. God will start over brand new with Noah and his family. Noah will be like a second Adam for God's second creation as he remakes the earth in a way. But you know, it, it doesn't, really, doesn't really fix anything. And Noah was better than everyone else. He was, in God's eyes, even a righteous man. But it didn't really solve the problem of sin, and it didn't solve the problem of death. And you know why that is? Who got on the ark? It was eight sinners. And who got off the ark? Eight sinners. Nothing really changed, and their descendants would still be sinners, still born spiritually dead. And God knew this, but that's our lesson. That's a lesson for us. And that's why in chapter 9, God promises not to destroy the earth again with a flood, because that's not really the answer. It's not going to change anything. Something more is needed. Another plan is needed. Now, this is all a part of God's plan all along, but nonetheless, this is how we see our history unfolding. And this gets us to Genesis chapter 12, where we're introduced to one man now, one man among many, whose name is Abram, later changed to Abraham. And, and through this man, God makes a promise for all humanity, Genesis 12, verse 3, and that in him, through him, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And this right here, this is the kernel, and it begins the unfolding of God's, that's God's real plan and it's not a plan of judgment, but of redemption. It's not another way to wipe everyone off the face of the earth, but to seek to redeem man, to save him from sin and from death. That's our biggest problem. Last time I checked, we have no answer for it. But God does. The answer is found in God's plan. This plan is hinted at back in Genesis chapter 3, by the way. You can go back there. You first have in chapter 3, verse 15, which addresses the, the problem in heaven, which is Satan's rebellion against God, and, and God 
through the woman promises a seed who will come and will deal a, a fatal blow of defeat to the serpent, to Satan. That's talking about the battle of, between Christ and Satan. But it's also interesting what we find in chapter 3, verse 21. Look there, right after, right after God curses man, he says, or rather we learn this, verse 21. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You catch that? Where did these garments of skin come from? They came from an animal. And that only means one thing. This was the first death ever. This is the first death. Already God's creation was perfect, and then you have sin, and then you have Satan, and riding its coattails not far behind is death. And it's been the same way ever since. But what's also interesting is that God commits this death, so to speak. He makes a sacrifice. The first death is a sacrifice for the first humans. God already is using the death of another to cover the sin and the shame of man. And right then, Adam and Eve understood this whole death thing that God was talking about, that they have waiting for them, that they will still die. But hopefully, right then, they also understood the death that God could redeem them from. God is the answer to death as well. And this foreshadows God's ultimate plan. It's a plan for his glory, but that glory comes through his redeeming man from death by substituting a sacrifice for him. It's only through the death of another that we can regain life. And it is true. We've sinned, all of us. We are guilty. We deserve a judgment. But God steps in. God provides a sacrifice, and he pays the penalty for you. This is made very clear in a powerful way thousands of years later in Romans chapter 5. If you want, you can turn there. But he speaks about one. Through one, Adam, everyone died. Through the one, all died. Through his one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. But the answer to this is not the first Adam, it's the second Adam, Jesus, who through his death rescued men from death and gave life. He became that substitute sacrifice. And through his death, you can live. There has to be a death. And this is God's plan, his answer for death. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You all, you all know it. But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the answer, God's answer, to all of our problems. The problem of sin, the problem of Satan, the problem of death. Jesus answers them all. He solves them all, you could say. He resolves them. He conquers them. And he offers you life, not death, life. If you, if you believe in him, if you have faith. His death becomes your death. That's Romans 6, the next chapter. His death becomes your death. His resurrection to new life becomes your new life. And now through him only can you escape the second death. That's the eternal separation from God. That's hell. 
All of this comes by the hands of a gracious and a loving God. He, he did not have to redeem us. He did not have to offer a substitute sacrifice. He chose to because of his love for mankind. And this is a gift. You get this? You accept it? Free gift. And how does that chapter end? What's the last verse in that famous Romans chapter 6, verse 23? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the answer. So do you accept God's answer to death? Will you receive God's free gift which solves the problem of death or not? Now with that, you can put that in the back of your mind now and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. That was all just a an extended special introduction this morning, and it's needed because we have a very special passage before us today. And today we come to witness firsthand, for the first time in Mark's Gospel, Christ's own power over death. In Mark chapter 5, this whole section really goes back to Mark chapter 4, where we witness a series of miracles, each testifying of Christ's true nature and his, His true power. From the stilling of the storm, we see his power over nature. From the delivering of the garrison demoniac, we see his power over demons. From the healing of the woman with an incurable disease, we see his power over sickness and disease itself. One story after another, each begs the question, who can do this? Who can do such things? Who is this? And these stories in this line of questioning climaxes in our passage today where we find a little girl who has died and we encounter death, our, our greatest enemy. And this is the end. Even though we can't do anything about it, Jesus can. It turns out the people in our story, they f- still didn't fully realize who Jesus was. And he's going to show them in a stark way his power even over death itself. And it leaves us asking the question, who is this? Who can do this? Who holds command over death itself? There's only one answer to the question, and it has a world of implications, which we will see. Without doing much more setup, I want us just to jump right into our, our passage. We don't really need an outline. We're just going to go through this, relive the story, retell the story. And so follow along with me, starting at verse 21, Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. Jesus and his disciples are back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, near Capernaum. And we find this, this huge crowd they had left behind on the day before, they're still there. They're still waiting around, waiting for Jesus to come back. And just picture 10,000 plus people on the shore, scattering the shore in the hillsides, just everywhere. And see Jesus pull into shore. They just swoop down upon him. They, they swarm him immediately. The day before, they heard him teach in parables from the shore. They haven't gone anywhere. So now he comes back. He stays by the shore. Safe thing to do. And he, he's getting ready to presumably minister to the crowds again. But we find that this time there's one person in the crowd who manages to move his way to the front. 
And he gets Christ's special attention. And so the crowd kind of sinks into the background and we pay attention to this one person. Verse 22. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him, fell at his feet. We were introduced to Jairus a little bit last week, but just to recap, you know, who is this guy? Well, if you remember, he's a man of importance. He, he's literally the synagogue ruler, the local synagogue ruler, like the CEO of the synagogue. He's the top guy, which means every Jew in Capernaum would have known Jairus, would have respected him. He's not a scribe, he's not a Pharisee, he's not a priest, anything formal. He's just he, the, the ruler of the synagogue was reserved for a layperson who was normally pretty rich, and they were charged with administering and overseeing the synagogue and, and Sabbath worship. But he does something you wouldn't expect a synagogue ruler to do. He runs up to Jesus and he just kisses the dirt. He puts his face down, he's bowing down before him, and he starts begging Jesus. We made this, this point last week, let me reiterate it, that his actions here are, are borderline dangerous. This, this might cost him. This might cost him his position. And why? It's because of the Pharisees and the ruling Jews. They had already hatched, or rather were starting to hatch a plot to kill Jesus because he exposed their hypocrisy. And one of the things they were doing to hold on to their power, they were starting to excommunicate any Jews who publicly supported Jesus. And they did that by banning them from the synagogue. makes you a total social outcast. You get banned from the synagogue. And, and John 12.42 tells us that even synagogue rulers were not exempt. And so what we see Jairus doing here may later cost him. Jairus is in a way validating the ministry of Jesus. This may cost him his position. But you know what? He doesn't care. At this point, he doesn't care about anything. He's desperate for some help. And so he really doesn't care. It just makes us wonder what, what makes him so desperate. And the answer is verse 23. And he begs, he says, verse 23, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come, lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Now you can see this passage might work a little bit better for Father's Day, but it applies just the same to any mother, any parent. If you're a parent in the room, just put yourself in Jairus' sandals and ask yourself, if you had a child who was going to die, what would you do? What wouldn't you do? Is there anything? Would you risk public shame and losing your job if it could save them? Of course you would. You'd do anything. And this little girl, she was dying. She's 12 years old, Luke says. She is their only daughter. In the Greek, this expression means she's, she's nearly dead. She's on death's doorstep. This is it. She will not make it past this day. Unless there's a miracle, this is it for her. And Jairus, he knew what he had to do. It doesn't say, I don't know, but I bet that in the days and the weeks before this, Jairus contemplated going to Jesus earlier and getting some help. But maybe the the social pressure held him back to this last moment. Maybe he thought, no, she'll get better on her own. She'll just give it a little more time. She'll get better. But she wasn't getting better. She was getting worse and worse. 
and he knew it was it. Jairus had seen Jesus heal before in his own synagogue. And so he knew what he had to do. Despite the cost, it was time to go to Jesus and beg for help. And already, although not perfect, Jairus displays faith. Already we see faith from Jairus. Despite the obstacles, despite the cost, he's seeking Jesus out. And that that takes faith. He really believes that Christ can save his daughter. He's not wondering or hoping. He believes it. He doesn't say, can you save her? He says, will you? Just come. Please come. He believes. If you just if you just touch her, just lay your hands on her, it's done. She'll be well. Just please come. He has a real faith. We don't see him doubting Jesus. We don't see him with 50% confidence in Jesus. He's not hedging his bets. He believes. And already we see a picture of faith. Maybe this is why Jesus agrees. Verse 24, and he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. We don't know what Jesus said, but he goes. And with Jairus by his side and the crowd in tow, they move from the shore to Jairus' house. But it's very slow going because literally thousands of people are pressing in on him. You're not moving fast. And I'm sure this made Jairus crazy anxious and frustrated. I'm sure Jairus is like, at least he's wanting to say, people, get out of the way. This is an emergency. Just move. We've got to get to my house. It's like being with a loved one who needs to get to the hospital and the ambulance comes. And you get in the ambulance with them only to to find bumper-to-bumper traffic. You can't do anything about it. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? And you know what would make it even worse? What if the ambulance had to make another stop before they went to the hospital? And that's what happens. That's what happens with Jesus. They're on the way to Jairus' house to heal the daughter, but he takes time to make a stop. And you know that made Jairus crazy. And here, at this point in our text, we encounter a story within a story. Jairus, going to be on the side burner for a moment, and we encounter this whole other story with another face in the crowd. This is what we studied last week. We we took this whole passage apart last week, so we're not going to do that right now. But... Just for the sake of recap, you can see what goes on, because they're meant to be read together. Let's keep reading and just read through this story within a story about a nameless woman. So while this is taking place, en route to Jairus' house, verse 25. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
and be healed of your affliction. This is quite a, an amazing story within a story. If you want the details, you got to download last week's sermon. But, but we see that both of these stories feature two nameless daughters. One daughter has been sick for 12 years. The other is 12 years old and is about to die. Both Jairus and this unnamed woman are desperate for Jesus. They both fall down before Jesus and they both believe that just a touch from Jesus can save them. And do you think it's a coincidence they both meet Jesus on the same day? I don't think so. Clearly God orchestrated these two run-ins to provide both a powerful picture of faith and also a powerful display of Christ's true nature. In fact, we'll see as we move along. Jairus was intended to learn a thing or two about faith from this woman. I'm sure at first he thinks he's thinking she's a real roadblock. I bet he didn't say anything because he can't, he can't really say anything, but I'm sure he's thinking, okay, Jesus, it's very nice of you to stop and help this lady. She's Okay, she's sick and all, but she's not dying. My daughter's dying. Let's, just, let's move on. Let's come back to her later. Can't we just speed this up? But Jairus himself needed to see this woman. He needed to see this. He was right there to see her faith, to see her response, to see Christ's response, because in a very short moment, he was going to need the same type of faith, only more so, because his test was about to get a lot worse. And that happens in the very next verse. Let's pick back up Jairus' story in verse 35. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Now who knows, maybe they weren't even that far from his house at this point, but it doesn't really matter because she died. At this point, all hope is lost. And so they say, don't, don't bother Jesus anymore. Nothing more can be done. This gives you a little window into how they really perceived Jesus at this point. They thought of him as a great teacher, someone who who spoke the word of God. And they thought of him as a great healer. He could heal all manner of sickness and disease, but that's it. That's where it stopped. Because they thought even Jesus could not cross the river of death and bring someone back. So it's over. All hope is lost. But don't say that to Jesus. Because that's not what he thinks. Verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And Luke, in his account, he adds this phrase. Jesus said, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And she will be made well. And that's really significant. That's where we see these two stories converge because right at the moment just the split second right at the moment jesus was telling this one daughter your faith has made you well at that same moment jairus got news your daughter has died and jesus overheard and what does he say to jairus in that moment he says don't fear only believe and she will be made well it's the same word he uses, in the Greek, it's sozo, the word for salvation. 
And that's what Jesus does. He's showing you just, just believe. And I save people. That's, that's what I do. In the exact same moment that this one nameless daughter was saved, the other nameless daughter is, is lost. But Jesus says literally to him, keep on believing and she will be saved too. Jairus was meant to derive from this other nameless woman a pattern of the faith that he was to have. And he needed it even more at this point. We all know this. When Jairus received the news that his daughter had died, his heart sank. His stomach turned to stone, lump in his throat, couldn't breathe, maybe started to tear up. It it was over. As she became more and more sick, his hope grew smaller and smaller and smaller, like a flame slowly dying out. And by the time he, he said, I need to go to Jesus, it's like there's one little ember left, that's it, of hope. And when he got news that she had died, it's like someone took water and poured it on the flame. It's over. All hope has been extinguished. There's nothing left. But Jesus tells him directly, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Now first off, this let me say this, this completes the, the fear versus faith motif that's found in all four of these these stories from the stilling of the sea to the garrison demoniac to the healing of the nameless woman to Jairus's daughter all four of these stories right here involve a fear that needs to be replaced by faith we have many reasons to fear in life because we have many threats to our life from storms to demons to disease to death. But each of these four stories shows us that Jesus is greater than them all. He is more powerful than them all. Even death. And you know what? If you get that, you know what that should make you do? should make you fear Jesus. You should be afraid of Him. Because who is more powerful than death? But at the same time, rest assured, because He's, he's good. He's good. It's like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. This lion figure, and they say, he's not a tame lion. He is a ferocious lion. He is a fearsome lion. But he is a good lion. He is a good lion. And because of that, your fear needs to be transformed into faith. And through this, he will come and save you. So Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid. Just keep on believing. Keep on believing. This is an extreme level of faith that Jesus is calling Jairus to because look, keep on believing what? What do you want me to believe? That maybe she's not really dead? I mean, even at this point, Jairus is not thinking resurrection. It has not entered his equation whatsoever. So what what is he supposed to keep on believing? But Jesus just wants Jairus to keep believing in him. Just before this, Jairus came to Jesus, bowing down, begging him, and he really trusted. He really believed that Jesus could help his daughter. And Jesus, at this point, is just saying, don't stop believing that. Just keep believing I can help your daughter. She will be saved. Just just keep believing in me. That's it. And what does Jairus say? We have no idea. Maybe he says nothing. Maybe he's just shell-shocked into silence, but... We do know that he keeps on believing. 
And how do we know that? Because they resume that slow march to his house. They, they keep going. He's shaken, but he takes Jesus at his word. He's like, okay, well, let's go find out. Let's go see my daughter. And this action really is another powerful picture of faith. True faith believes God's word and trusts God's promises even when all hope seems lost. Do you, do you understand that? True faith believes God's word and trusts God's promises even when all hope seems lost. And let me differentiate this from wishful thinking. This is not just wishful thinking. Someone might say, I believe I can fly to the moon. And they might believe it with all their heart. But that's just foolish, wishful thinking. Because that belief is not based on the Word of God. Faith instead, it's the same type of sold-out conviction, but it has to be directed by the Word and the promises of God. Instead, real faith, it latches onto the promises of God, like Romans 8.28, that God will work out all things for good for those who love Him. And even when that seems impossible... Like when a child dies, you still believe. You still hold on to the promises. That's true faith. That's the type of faith which saves. That's the type of faith with which Jairus displays right now. He, he's going to still believe even though it seems impossible. So at this point, Jesus, Jairus, the crowd, the disciples... They continue the slow march to, to Jairus' house. This time when they get close, Jesus tells them all to go away, except a few, verse 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. I'll briefly point out this is the first time we see Christ's inner circle form in the Gospel of Mark. These three would accompany Jesus at special times, apart from the rest. And you wonder why, well... It's because they had great faith, and it's because God was grooming them to be pillars of the early church. And also, don't forget this fact, that according to the Old Testament, uh, a, a fact must be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. These men had to be present at key times like this, what we're going to see right here, in the Mount of Transfiguration, in the Garden of Gethsemane, because they needed to witness what really took place in Christ's special hours, and that they could later report what really happened. They were witnesses, and that's why there's three of them. Anyway, for now, Jesus dismisses everyone but the family and the three, and they get to the house, and what's the scene at the house? Verse 38. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion? And weep. The child has not died, but is asleep. We find quite a scene at the house. It's, it's almost like the funeral has already started, which shows you just how close to death the girl was. They had already made preparations. People were there gathered. Mourners are everywhere. People loudly weeping and wailing and crying and moaning. But Jesus comes and he challenges their grief, which... Seems kind of insensitive at first. He says the child has not died, but is asleep. 
And that, that should make you pause. Because, well, wait a second, no. She's not really sleeping. She, she's dead. She has died. So what is Jesus saying? Well, what does he mean? And to be sure, she really is dead. Luke chapter 8, verse 55 confirms her spirit had left her body. That's the definition of physical death. So is Jesus mistaken? Is he lying? Is he just trying to trick them to make them feel better? What, what's going on? Well, no, of course not. Rather, instead, he's making one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture. All of Scripture. He's saying that through him, because of him, death will not have the final say over this girl. He's saying that he's the answer to death. He's saying that because of him, death is as temporary as sleep. Jesus speaks of death figuratively because he is redefining the nature of death. I mean, after all, if, if something like resurrection is possible, is death really still death? What do we call it? If it's not permanent anymore, if you're going to rise again, what do you call it? It's more like an extended sleep. And later New Testament writers would pick up on this metaphor and use sleep as a euphemism for the death of a Christian. And no, they're not teaching soul sleep, no. But rather, the point is that their dead state is as temporary as sleep. And they will rise again, even to a bodily life. And this is why when a, when a Christian dies, other Christians don't need to mourn. Because it's not a permanent loss. It's not a permanent. There's a victory in Jesus and they're going to rise again. Everyone actually will rise again, but those in Christ will rise to an eternal life, not an eternal death. And this, this sounds really strange to non-Christians. They don't understand it. But that's why Christian funerals can be celebrations. To the world, that's just crazy. Why, would why are you happy? But to those in Christ, there's no reason not to be happy. We look forward to seeing the Lord, and through Jesus, the loss of death is gone. It's corrected. But those who don't know Christ, they don't get it. And that's what we see at the house. The, the people at Jairus' house, the mourners, they don't get it. They don't understand what he's talking about. And look at how they respond, verse 40. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. For she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And that's probably an understatement. But it works. That What were they expecting? At best, they probably thought Jesus was going to give her a nice personal eulogy, say some nice words, make them feel better. But they, they could not have been expecting this. But death was not going to have the final say in this instance. Jesus commanded, and death 
had to release its hold on the girl. But also notice here the tenderness of Jesus. He says, little girl. And that phrase actually can mean also little lamb, kind of the same thing. And it's such a tender phrase. Maybe the same words this girl's mother spoke to her every morning. Little girl, time to get up, time to wake up. Something you would say to someone to wake them up. It really was as if she's only sleeping. She's like, wake up. She really was dead, though. And that's what makes Christ's power all the more miraculous here. Because to Jesus, death is as weak and temporary as sleep. For Jesus to raise someone from the dead is no more difficult than it is to rouse someone from a nap. And when he spoke, her spirit returned, and she got up. Back to life. And also, by the way, she was healed. It's not like she came back to life but was back sickly on her deathbed. She was back healed to brand new life, raised in perfect health, no recovery time. It's amazing. It's impossible. But it happened. And let's finish it off, verse 43. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said something should be given her to eat. And that's the end of the story. But you might be saying at first here, oh, okay, well, wait one second. Why does he want anyone to know about this? Isn't that his whole mission? Isn't this like the best thing he's ever done? Why don't you want everybody to know? Why is he trying to keep this hidden? There are actually several reasons, which unfortunately we can't get into, but I'll tell you the number one reason. Most of all, Jesus did not want this story told yet because no one could have really understood its true significance until after his resurrection. This wasn't meant to be a permanent secret. That's why the three disciples were there. They were supposed to tell this story after his resurrection, and they did. We have it now. Because only after his resurrection would the true significance of this resurrection be made known. At the time, if people found out about it, they would have thought it was a mere miracle. But this is not just a miracle. It's, it's a message. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. That's the last thing he wanted them to think of him, and that's what would have happened. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the answer to death itself. And he's not just a prophet. He's the Christ. And he's not even just the Christ. He's the Son of God. This is a divine work. Jesus is the life giver. He comes to answer death. That's the message. He gives life. That's what John 14.6 says. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only solution. And if he touches you, he touches your life, there's life from death. That's the message. It's not just a healing. It's not just a story. To be sure, it is a healing. It is a story. It is history. This has happened. But more than that, it's a message. And God records it for us to teach. And this story powerfully delivers several great lessons that you, you can't miss. You just can't miss these. And and as you look at this text and you read it, you're like, okay, this is more than a story. What, what are we supposed to see here? 
two in particular, two special lessons rise to the surface. And, and I want to make sure as we spend a little bit more time here that we get this from our text. The first lesson is all about Jesus. The second lesson is all about you. And you don't want to miss either of them. So let's just spend a little bit more time now making sure we, we get what this is really all about, why, why this is here for us. And first, we find this story teaches us about Jesus. That's the main point. It reveals to us more than any other of these stories his true nature. Because you thought it was something when he showed you his power over nature or demons or disease. And then that was amazing. But it's nothing compared to his power over death. And that's it. Us humans, we, we, we can manage a little bit of hope versus nature, a little bit of hope versus demons, a little bit of hope versus disease, but there's no hope versus death. You have no hope. There's nothing you could ever do. Until now. Jesus is the only hope versus death. And he's, he's the answer. He is the answer to death. The answer is resurrection. It is life from death, and Jesus holds that power. It comes from him. And this story is given so that you would get the person of Jesus right. He's the Christ, and he's the Son of God. And also so that you would get the mission of Jesus right. And he's not just a healer. He's not just some miracle worker. Listen to this. If Christ's mission was merely to heal people, then he would be a total failure. It'd be a failure. Why? Because there's still sickness and disease and suffering and death. Nothing changed. And even think about this. All the people he healed, guess what? They all got sick again. Even this little girl raised from the dead. You know what happened to her? She maybe lived out her days, but one day she died again. She died. She's not still around. So does this make Jesus a failure? Only if his mission was just to physically heal people. But that's not his mission. It's not God's will for everyone to be healed. People still die. Everyone still dies. For the wages of sin is death. That's physical and spiritual. But this story, understood in light of Christ's own resurrection, it lets us know that his real mission is to give life from death, and we're not just talking physical life. We're talking a spiritual life from death. This may be a little foreign to you to think about, but your real problem is not physical death. It's not your problem. That's just a symptom of your greater problem. And your greater problem is your spiritual death, which is, remember, separation from God. That's your real problem. And so the solution you need is not just physical resurrection. Even if you died and were raised back to life, guess what? You'd still die again because you're a sinner. The wages of sin is death and that problem hasn't been resolved. The solution you really need is spiritual. You need a spiritual resurrection, which just so happens to be what the Bible calls new birth. You have to be born again. You must be made alive, regenerated. And who can make that happen? 
Who can manage that? There's only one. It's Jesus. This little girl could not raise herself to life, nor can you. Someone must make you born again. Someone must raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that's impossible. Your sin cuts you off from God. You can't save yourself. But that's where Jesus comes in. He came to do the impossible. He paid for your sin. He nailed it to the cross. He took it out of the way. And he became your substitute, like that, like that little animal back in the garden. He died in your place to cover your sin. That's the mission. That's the plan. The death we deserved, he died. And then he holds out his hand and offers life. Come to me and live. By faith, approach him, believe in him, follow him, and you will live. It's like Jesus said to Martha after the death of Lazarus. She, she came up to Jesus complaining, if you had only been here sooner, he wouldn't have died. You just, you just missed it. But she still didn't quite get it. And Jesus said to her, John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He said. Again, it's not the first death you really need to worry about. It's the second death you need to worry about. That eternal separation from God. And Jesus answers really both. This might go over your head, but I'm going to say it anyway. It kind of works like this. If you're born twice, you'll only die once. If you're born twice, you'll only die once. If you're born again, you pass out of judgment. You pass out of the second death, the eternal death. But if you're only born once, then you will die twice. You will suffer the first death physical and a second death, an eternal spiritual separation from God. So the question really becomes... How do you get what Jesus offers, this new birth, this answer to death? What do you need to do? How do you get this eternal life? How is one born again and raised to new life? If only we had some picture of this. If only there were some story in the Bible that kind of gave us a picture of the path to new birth. And this leads us to the second lesson from the story of Jairus and his daughter. That's the second reason this is here. This is the story. This lesson is all about you. Really, though, it comes from Jairus. It comes from this nameless woman from before. You can add them together now. Because both of them provide for us, through this story, an object lesson on the path to saving faith. The path to new birth. Let me just point out some things from Jairus and the nameless woman. Notice first, both of them, their path began with what? Desperation. They start off desperate. Hopelessly desperate. They had no other options and they knew it. And you know what? The path to new birth just so happens to begin the same place. Desperation. You start off truly desperate. No one was ever saved who was not first desperate over his hopelessly lost condition. 
You have to begin by seeing the depths of your sin, the fact that you can't save yourself, you know what's coming to you, and you know you can't do anything about it. That just makes you one thing, desperate. But secondly, that desperation leads you to Jesus. In their desperation, Jairus and the woman, they could have turned to magic, they could have turned to superstition, to religion, a whole number of things, but they turned to Jesus. And that's because they were guided there by the truth. And that's the second step. You need the truth to come in and inform and guide your desperation. You must receive the revelation of Jesus Christ and your desperation must be informed by the truth. Otherwise, what's to stop you to, from turning to the sun and the moon for help in your time of need? Your desperation must be guided and informed by the truth of Jesus. The truth is the second step on the path new birth. Thirdly, that truth, you learn who Jesus really is, leads to fear. Yeah, fear. For as you come to realize truly who Jesus is, it's a it's a scary thing. It's a fearsome thing. He's God. He's holy. You're not. You're a sinner. You don't belong in his presence. That's not a safe place for you to be but not to fear because the last step, that fear is overcome by faith. By faith. Because Jesus is not against you. He's for you. This is what happened to the woman. This is what happened to Jairus. Fear gripped them. There's fear in all four of these stories. But that fear needed to be transformed into faith. What did Jesus say? He said, have no fear, only believe. They needed to have faith in Jesus. They needed to trust God's power to save them. And when they did, what happened? Jesus literally said to them, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Jesus touches them and everything changes. They're they're saved. Remember this, they're unclean. The nameless woman is diseased. The little girl is dead both to Jews, super unclean. Like, you cannot touch those types of people. But how does Jesus save them? By a touch. And you might think that their uncleanness is going to transfer to Jesus, but no, just the opposite happens. His cleanness transfers to them. And that also is a picture of salvation. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He died our death. He took our sin, our uncleanness, And he gave us his righteous life, his cleanness in return. From desperation to the truth, to fear, to faith, if you believe, God makes you born again. Romans 6.23, we read it earlier. For the wages of sin is death. You're going to die. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you believe? If you do, does death go away? Well, no, it doesn't. Because of the fall, we will all taste death and the curse. Death still has a sting. That's why there's a sense of mourning when a loved one dies, and that's appropriate. It still hurts. But if you do believe, and if you are saved in Christ, he redefines death to take away the sting. Because 
because of him, death now, it's merely like sleep. And you're going to wake up. and There will be new life, even bodily new life in him, resurrection. We began our time talking about the, the perfection of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And it was spoiled just in that third chapter by Satan and sin and death. And you know what? That whole pattern is reversed in the last three chapters of the Bible. The last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, describe God's new creation, His new heavens and earth, that perfect place where He will dwell with men forever. But that can't happen until what must take place first? The curse must be reversed and death itself must be abolished. And it's no surprise then that we find right at the end of chapter 20, the third to last chapter in the Bible, the death of death. We find in that chapter the great white throne judgment. All of the dead are judged. Those not in Christ are eternally separated from God. And then chapter 20, verse 14. Then death itself and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And we ask, how, how is this possible? Who, who has conquered death like this? Who can kill death? Who can judge and get rid of death itself? There's only one who has that power. And it's God. And God, the Son, will be that judge on the white throne. He'll be the judge. But He will also be the one who can deliver you. He can save you. He can give you victory over death right now. And the question just is, will you lose your life to find it? Eternal life, it's free, free gift, but it costs you your life. So will you give up one life to get the next? Will you follow him? Will you give him your life? Let me just close. You don't have to turn there, but let me read for you 1 Corinthians 15, powerful final words about life and death. Speaking of Jesus, verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. In verse 53, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you praying and reiterating, reaffirming what we see there. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory over sin, over Satan, over death. And it comes not through us. There's nothing we can do we are unworthy. We confess our guilt, our sin, our shame. Like Adam and Eve, we stand naked before you and there, there's nothing we can say. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we thank you for your Son 
the sacrifice slain like that Passover lamb to cover us, to cover our sin, our shame, our guilt, that we might stand before you right and even righteous, not by our own, but by his righteousness. What a gift that was given. Lord, it it truly is unbelievable that anyone could ever doubt your love because look what you did through Christ and just because of love, because you loved even a fallen man. We thank you for your love. We thank you for showing that love in Christ. Thank you for giving us life in him. And I pray for any who, who don't know him that they are humbled right now. They realize how desperate they are. They turn to you through the truth and fear into faith and believe in the one who can save them and give you their lives. And they will be born again. But we celebrate this this morning for the, the life and death of Jesus and his resurrection. That, that is our life and our victory. We celebrate that victory. Help us to live now victorious lives in the spirit and doing what is right before you. And Lord, we give you all the glory for these things. In your name we pray. Amen.